This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. My name is Sam Mountain from the University of Missouri, and my guest is Robert Wyman, who's an assistant professor in the College of Education at Rowan University, which is in New Jersey. Robert, thanks for being here. Thank you, Sam. We're going to be talking about Rob's forthcoming book. Um, it's coming out soon, published by NCTM, and it's entitled Success from the Start, Your First Years Teaching Secondary Mathematics, and that's co-authored with Fran Arbaugh. Um, but before we get to that book and dig into it, um, I wanted to ask Rob about your grad school experience and your dissertation. Sure. So I went to the University of Delaware for grad school, and um, I really enjoyed it. So i like to sort of back up a little bit. Before I went to grad school, I was a, a public school teacher in New York City. So I taught high school and a little bit of middle school math in mostly small alternative schools in New York City, um, and then decided to go to grad school, mostly because I really wanted to learn more about teaching and learning. So a lot of the kids that I was working with I knew were very smart, but seemed to not know as much math as I wanted. And I seemed, I was getting lots of um, feedback that I was doing a really great job, but there were still lots of kids who didn't understand math. So one of the biggest spurs was just try and just learn more about that. Um, so I went to Delaware, and so I really loved Delaware. I think it was a great place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the College of Education was very good at being very clear about what they were doing was acculturating you to a different culture. So this culture of sort of academic research community. And they were very thoughtful and purposeful about how to do that. So, you know, they had a set of core courses for all the PhD education folks that were very clear about. So these are the kinds of things you do as an mm-hmm. academic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the, you know, our assignments were to, you know, write a review of an article, a book for a, for a journal or interview a professor, or, you know, all these various different things that academics do. And they really took questions seriously about culture, like, so do you call your professors by their first name or doctor? Mm-hmm. Or, so that part was really good. And then, and then I think the math ed folks in Delaware um, were incredibly good at sort of being very clear and consistent around what makes for good research. And a very simple message around just sort of alignment that your framework aligns with your questions that aligns with your methods, which aligns with your data, which aligns with your sort of discussion. And it, it's a very simple idea, seemingly, mm-hmm. um, but it turns out not to be so simple. And they <laughs> just sort of over and over and over again. So I sort of have, it feels like I have these really smart people in my head mm-hmm. who aren't me. They've implanted <laughs> their voices in your head. <laughs> yeah. So, and so, you know, if I have Jim Hebert and Ann Morris and Mandy Jansen and Tanya Bartell and Don Burke, if I have their voices in my head, I think I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. So, so I really liked, liked it a lot, um, and I thought it was incredibly valuable. I also thought it was very different than... So there was an overlap, but a not a complete... You know, was not isomorphic with the reasons that I went there. And so that was really interesting, right? So I learned a lot about the research of teaching and learning which in many ways informs teaching and learning, but is not the same thing as learning how to teach better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, sort of having to negotiate that and think about that and what were sort of urgent questions in one field versus the other, I just found fascinating and interesting and 
um, difficult, but in a great way. Mm -hmm. And what was the question that you decided to tackle with your dissertation? How did you do that? So my dissertation was about what happens when teachers are asked to make goals to improve their teaching and then gather evidence to decide whether they've actually gotten better or not. So folks in Delaware and elsewhere have, you know, do a fair amount of talking about, so one of the things we need to do is try and improve teaching. And so one way to do that is to create a goal and collect evidence and then we sort of refine what we do. And so in Delaware and other places, that's sort of become this policy mandate, too, that you have to, as a teacher, you have to come up with a goal and then you have to present evidence that you've actually gotten better at that thing. So this is something researchers say teachers should do. It's something that some policymakers seem to think teachers should do. In some ways, they're supposed to do it. Um, and so my question is, so what actually happens when they do it? Um, and to me, that actually is kind of a big, a big question in at least mathematics education is, so there's, there's all these things that people think should happen, but what does it actually look like when it happens? Mm. Right? And so to those of us that are, that are sort of coming from the teacher world, um, you know, there's quite a lot of difference between what we describe should happen or what we think is happening or, and what our own experience was. So, so that was sort of what I looked at. And, and then I ended up finding a couple things. So at Delaware, we have this wonderful option of being able to write two articles rather than one mm-hmm. 500-page dissertation, which you then have to turn into two articles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one article was a lit, a lit review of sort of what, if I'm a teacher, um, what, does the, what does the literature say about what data I should collect and how I should analyze it and what good will it do me? And guess what? I found out that not everybody says the same thing. So this seemingly simple directive to gather data to improve your teaching mm-hmm. turns out to not mean the same thing to, the, to everybody. Right. Um, and so I sort of said, look, there's, I sort of framed it as there's three different ways of looking at this, and they're really determined by how you define the main problem of education. So that was sort of the lit review. And then the, and then the empirical study was this, I just sort of had teachers write down what their goals were and what evidence they were going to collect to see if they met their goals. And then the next month I said, what were your goals and what evidence did you collect and did you actually meet your goals and how do you know? Mm-hmm. And then what are your goals going to be for next month and what evidence are you going to collect? Mm-hmm. And then I just looked and saw, so sort of began by saying, what do they write and do they connect teaching and learning? So this was this big idea was, do you actually connect teaching and learning? Right, because I think a lot of times people actually collect data and they don't connect teaching and learning, right? So they'll say, oh, Mrs. Jones's students do really well. She's good. Mm-hmm. Mr. Mr. Anderson's teachers, you know, students don't do well. He's bad. But they don't actually say, what's the teaching that produced this particular gain? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what could, what could Mr. Anderson have done that, to actually have his students better, other than be more like Mrs. Jones, which... May or may not even be true because yeah, Mrs. Jones might have had other factors at play. Right, we don't know. So, yeah. so this idea is that it would be nice to connect teaching and learning um, if what, <laughs> if what you really want to do is see improvement overall, right? Mm-hmm. So if I don't, and so I just looked at did they do that? Mm-hmm. And again, this seems to be a theme with my work is that well, yes, they did, but in sort of ways that are more complex than you might think mm-hmm. if you just read the mandates about connect teaching and learning and so it turned out to be a little more complicated and there's more than one way to do that mm-hmm. and they all did it in some ways but the way that um, appears to be most productive um, was sort of the most difficult and so that will help us think about how and if and when we can start to support and teach those skills in teacher education and in 
professional development mm-hmm. and in working with as teachers. Yeah, and in supporting specifically beginning teachers, uh, which is the subject of the book. So NCTM is going to be uh, very soon publishing this book, Success from the Start, that you wrote with Fran Arbaugh. I was wondering if you could introduce us to the book in terms of what NCTM sort of proposed as the purpose of the book or what you see as the purpose of this book. So this book actually came out of the NCTM Materials Committee, and they saw um, a need. They said, so look, there's a lot of books for new teachers, and there's a lot of books for teachers of mathematics, mm-hmm. but the books for new teachers don't really specifically address mathematics. They're sort of these general things, and, and sort of so general pedagogy or specific tips or, you know, you know, never smile till Thanksgiving or these sort of disembodied <laughs> things um, of any number, you know, sort of various values. And then there was these books for, for how to teach mathematics that seemed to presuppose a whole bunch of things, right? So... So they sort of espouse these sort of fairly complex strategies around teaching that require that you're that that some of the more logistical elements of teaching that people that are so sort of difficult at the beginning you've, you you kind of have taken care of. Mm-hmm. And so what NCTM thought was that there's really a, a place for a book for new teachers of mathematics that that frames things that are important for new teachers to know. Um, specifically in the realms of mathematics, so so that was sort of where the, the, that that's where the book came out of, and so that's sort of the idea of the book. And they originally wanted there to be one book, you know, a, a book for new teachers of mathematics that they actually asked my wife and a colleague of hers to write. My wife's name is Sarah Ryan, and she is going to be writing a com- a companion book to this, not a companion, another book that's the, like the this. The counterpart to it. Yeah. Right. Um, and so she actually wrote back and said, I'm happy to do it, but I don't feel like I have the expertise to do it for middle and high school. I can just do it for elementary school. Mm-hmm. So I wrote to NCTM and said, well, I hear you're looking for someone to write a book for new <laughs> teachers of mathematics. Here's what I know and what I can do. And I also can find someone else to write it with me who you've actually heard of who knows more than I do. And uh, so Fran was gracious enough to accept my offer after checking with my advisor to make sure that I was, A, not crazy, and B, able to do this at the same time as writing my dissertation. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my advisor said, what should I tell her? <laughs> um, so that's sort of how the book came about. Yeah. And I was wondering, too, if you have a, a sort of some guiding philosophies that you brought to now putting this into action. So you have this kind of charge from NCTM. Here's this need. And now, as you enacted it, what did you kind of bring? It sounds like maybe you brought um, some goal setting, some evidence gathering as part of this process to start right away with beginning teachers, maybe some connections between teaching and learning. Were there other um, overarching kind of ideas that you brought to it? Well, so so one thing we did right at the beginning was we all all four of us sat down, so Fran and me and Sarah and Kathy, and we sort of sketched out a... Um, well, actually, Kathy and Sarah got started earlier than we did, so we definitely piggybacked on some of their ideas, but there was this sort of idea of a big stru- of a structure of the book. So, mm-hmm. and, and it's really connected with sort of the purpose and the underlying ideas. So this, the book is structured, there's four different sections, and one section is the, sort of this big idea, the, the sort of the big picture section, where we talk about sort of what we mean by knowing and understanding mathematics and how then how we think um, students come to gain those understandings and then what that means for teaching. So it's sort of a theoretical framework. And then we have a section about sort of what you can do to create a learning community and what you can sort of do before kids arrive. So sort of the work that you do before 
kids arrive and at the beginning that sort of will set you up for success. And that one you call the laying the groundwork. Right, we that call that the laying the groundwork. And uh -huh. so there's, you know, there's stuff on how you can gain knowledge about your kids before they show up, mm -hmm. how you can identify and find people to help you in the school, right? So kind of are there other teachers you can work with? Can you learn about their curriculum and that sort of thing? And then, and then sort of some things that you can do in the first week or two that will really create a community that then sustains the kinds of learning that you want. And then we have a section about the lesson cycle, sort of planning and acting and reflecting and, and tasks. So sort of choosing tasks, planning lessons, and acting those lessons and then reflecting on them. And that's sort of the meat that's for us. That's kind of the meat of the book. Like that's mm -hmm. the thing that you have to do every day. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a final section called elements of affecting teaching. So it's other things that you have to do, but they're not as th that. Um, so there's like a there's a chapter on homework. There's a chapter on classroom management. There's a chapter on ways to deal with struggling students, assessment, mm -hmm. all those sorts of. It's a bit of a hodgepodge that you do all the time, but yeah, so it's in that last section. And so, so one of the things that we wanted to do so when we read lots of books there were so there's sort of theoretical books that talk about how kids learn mm -hmm. um, that are often somewhat either inaccessible or difficult to translate into actual practice right? mm -hmm. so especially if, if you're beginning out you know? especially, especially if you're beginning right and and then there's lots of books that just have lists and lists of tips right so you know get to know the janitor mm -hmm. you know always write a handwritten note to the kid at the beginning of school so these these tips are sort of idiosyncratic and really contextual and not really connected. So Fran and I have both spent a fair amount of time, you know, teaching ourselves, working with new teachers, doing professional development. And so, so one of the things that we've, we found is that, you know, we gave them lots of very specific things that they found very helpful. But often one of the things they would say is that above and beyond the specific things that you gave us, so specific questions to ask, specific techniques about figuring out where kids should sit, um, but beyond those specific things were these sort of big ideas. So, like, the thing that was most helpful was this idea that I should really work hard to understand what kids are thinking. Because, mm -hmm. like, that big idea really helps me, even if I forget the little things, like, that's sort of the, if I keep that in my head, that mm -hmm. just helps me out a lot. Or, you know, a really big idea is if they're not doing what I want, it isn't, it's because I haven't been clear, so I should be really clear about what it is that I want. And then that also helped me in a whole bunch of ways. So... Mm -hmm. So what we really wanted to do was to frame very specific suggestions in the context of bigger ideas mm -hmm. so that, and so for us that's really analogous to sort of, sort of knowledge in general, but mathematical knowledge specifically. Like if it's organized around sort of big concepts, mm -hmm. you understand it better, you remember it better, you can apply it better, you can transfer yeah. it. And so... It seems like it'll just make a bigger impact if it... If even if the smaller stuff is connected to a bigger idea, it seems like it right. sets it up for more impact. Absolutely. So, so, so a story like for, for me is, so I first learned sort of mathematics teaching um, as a teacher in, in this sort of incredibly progressive school in New York City. It's called Urban Academy. It's a really wonderful place. And the trappings were very sort of progressive and liberal and kids all sat, they always, they worked in groups and they sat in circles and talked and the student ideas were very much in the center and there was this really nice culture and community, and kids would behave very well. And and but they argued all the time in ways that were really great. And and you know, and the and the the people who ran it were sort of like these old progressive types from the '60s that you know had gone to Mississippi and the whole the whole nine. And so then I left there and went to a new school that had really struggled with math teachers, and and so 
um, I was like the seventh math teacher that this particular group of kids had had in you know, three years, and mm-hmm. the kids were all over the place, and I felt like a brand new teacher all over again, and they were not behaving at all, and they were throwing stuff and getting up and walking out of the classroom, da 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 And so I called up the old principal of this progressive place and, and explained what was going on, and, and he said, well, put them in rows and give them a test. And don't give them one big test, but give them, give them a really simple procedural problem. Just give it to them and collect it again in two minutes, and then give them another one. So that, that even if they finish it, they're never not busy for more than 30 seconds. And so it was the most antithetical, like you would never see anything like that in the school that he was principal of. But he had a bigger idea than whether you're in rows or not rows. Like, like his big idea was kids need to have confidence in you and they need to feel safe. And, and, and that in his school, they did it this way because they already had a culture. So this big idea became much more generative than it's important that kids work in groups. Like, that's not important. What's important is that they feel safe enough that their ideas can come out and we can talk about their ideas. Hmm. And in this place, at this time, with this group of kids and me as their teacher, the group structure wasn't working and that was okay. Hmm. Um, so what we wanted was can we somehow do this sort of theory-practice balance so that the specific examples that we gave or the specific tips are really um, embodiments of these bigger ideas, and the bigger ideas can become generative, like it all makes sense together. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, in these elements of effective teaching, so like the management chapter, Mm -hmm. many of the same ideas in the management chapter really are exactly the same as the ideas in the sort of creating the learning community chapter, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're the same ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, for us, that's sort of a big thing that we'd like to have happen in this book. Mm I'm speaking with Rob Wyman from uh, Rowan University uh, about his book from, uh, forthcoming from NCTM. So you mentioned classroom management, and of course that's you know a big topic for beginning teachers. It's very much a concern of pre-service teachers and beginning teachers and uh, old teachers. So. <laughs> um, and so there's there's quite a bit out there already on classroom management, but in this book. As you said, you know, it's tailored to mathematics specifically, and you tried to couch this in terms of the larger ideas that you're addressing in the book. Um, so could you say a little bit more about how you do, how does that classroom management look different in this book than you would see in other books that are maybe giving tips and things on classroom management? So I would say that one way, so I think there's a traditional way that people um, approach classroom management, and new teachers in particular see classroom management. So I think they define classroom management in terms of avoiding negative behaviors. And, and their sense of being good at math classroom management is reacting effectively to negative behaviors. And so we think that's sort of as of limited use and really isn't connected to mathematical thinking. Mm-hmm. So we sort of reframe the idea of classroom management into clarifying and then teaching positive mathematical behaviors. So instead of saying that the well-behaved student and the well-run classroom is one who does not dis- exhibit these negative behaviors. Mm-hmm. We talk about we talk about students that our goal for students is for them to learn and exhibit these positive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them are positive and, mathematical behaviors. Exactly. So mm-hmm. the positive behaviors aren't sit still and shuts up. Mm-hmm. Though sometimes that's absolutely necessary. Don't get me wrong. But the positive behaviors are creates good recommend representations or asks really good questions or explains uh, explains really well or justifies or is willing to disagree and, and even more so like is is willing to disagree mathematically or is able to um, 
is able to sort of continue to persevere and work on a problem even if they don't know what to do right away or stops and thinks about the problem and whether the, what they're doing is leading to a solution. So these are sort of intellectual habits, but I think we can also talk about them as behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so if we think about management as instead of looking at negative behaviors but looking for positive behaviors and clarifying those and reinforcing those, then management really becomes about creating a mathematical community mm -hmm. in specific ways and describing that community in terms of behaviors that you can describe and that kids can learn and that you can teach. Um, and so I learned this from elementary school teachers, right? So I remember coming home and saying, oh my gosh, these kids are throwing chalk all the time. And my wife would say, well, did you tell them not to? I said, they're 16 years old. They should know not to throw chalk. And she said, well, clearly they don't know not to mm -hmm. throw chalk. They're throwing chalk. Why don't you tell them? Mm -hmm. So the next day I would go in and I'd say, okay, you need to not throw chalk. And they stopped throwing chalk. Mm -hmm. um, and so, one but, of the, but then also uh, moving beyond that and saying, what do I want you to be doing? <laughs> right. So, so, so a perfect example of that is I was working with a teacher, and they would say, oh, I really want to have them go over homework together. Like, I want them to talk to each other. They'll go over homework together. Mm -hmm. um, and so we said, go over homework, and the kids stared blankly. Mm -hmm. And then remembering what my wife had said about, so what does it look like? What does it sound like? I would say, I, I remember saying. So when we say go over our homework, what we should see is we should see all of you looking at each other's paper. We should see your eyes looking at each other's paper. We should see you pointing at each other's homework, and we should hear things like, oh, I got that, or oh, I didn't get that, or did you get it? how did you get that answer? Mm -hmm. And I gave specific examples of the kinds of, and notice I'm not telling them how to do the math problems. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying here's the kinds of behaviors I want. And, and then immediately they did exactly that. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember as a... As a new teacher, I would have thought these kids don't care. They don't, you know, they don't. They mm -hmm. haven't done the homework. They don't know how to talk about homework. But mm -hmm. what I learned from my wife and from a few years teaching is that well, it wasn't because they didn't care. It's because they needed instruction. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because they needed instruction because they were stupid or culturally ignorant. It's because what does it look like to do this right, thing? That it, you're right. They they hadn't. Right. In the schools yeah. they had been, they'd not been told in, to do this. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of things, yeah. uh, management, that I'm talking about. And, yeah. and that's not new. I mean, so Joel Bowler talks about this in mm -hmm. her book um, and the, in the article about the Railside School. She talks, and, and there's this whole sort of the movement about um, complex instruction. Okay. So, so there's a whole theory, there's a whole program of research around complex instruction that talks very much about some of these behaviors and mm -hmm. some of the and some specific teacher moves you can do to raise status of low-status kids mm -hmm. and all these things. So yeah. that's another thing is we like to think that the ideas we come up with are grounded in the work of others, and mm -hmm. that's important to us. Another thing I noticed throughout the book is you bring vignettes in to illustrate key ideas, and you build off of those in the chapters. And you mentioned the lesson cycle section, one of the larger sections, is really the heart of the book. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could talk to us about one of the vignettes. Um, there's a Mr. Mario, and you use him to illustrate this part of the, less, the uh, lesson cycle of reflecting and then making adjustments based on that. I was wondering if you could talk to us about that. So, so Mr. Mario is a, a guy I worked with in New York, and he was a new teacher, and he was having his kids work in groups, and then he would want to move from a group discussion to sort of a, a large, to a, sort of a whole class discussion. And he was having a hard time getting them to stop interacting with their group and pay attention to the whole group. So this is, this is a common problem we all have, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not just new teachers, not just math teachers, but it's, it's a big problem. So he mentioned that this was a problem. 
And so I was sort of his instructional coach at that point. So I sat while he was in a regular class and just observed what was happening. And what we noticed was, or what I noticed, was that when he was trying to get the whole group to stop talking in their small groups and start talking as, as one group, the, the small groups were talking for sure, but they were talking about the math problem, mm-hmm. right? And so our assumption had been that they were sort of being, you know, chatty teenagers and we couldn't get them to shut up because they wanted to talk about, um, you know, the baseball game or the TV show or, you know, the fact that Susie and Johnny had a fight or whatever. And it turned out that actually they were doing exactly what we wanted. They just were not stopping doing what we wanted when we wanted them to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we actually thought about ourselves, that when we were in professional development doing math and the guy said we want to talk as a whole group, it generally took us a little while. <laughs> and had, that, had the person in charge told us that we needed to stop talking immediately, we would have been kind of put off. Yeah. Um, so we thought, oh, okay. So, so now it's, it reframes the problem, and it's really how do we get them to not stop talking about TV, but how do we get them to move to this um, large group discussion? So we said, okay, so actually we don't need them to be quiet right away. We just need them to sort of come to a close. So instead mm-hmm. of saying, could everyone pay attention right now, we changed it and said, so I need everyone's attention. Could you finish up your conversations? Mm-hmm. And so he did that. And it worked a little bit better, but not so great. Still not so great. So I sat in the room again, and I noticed that so he was saying this thing that was more aligned with what we actually wanted, mm-hmm. but kids just really weren't paying attention to him because they were mostly really still paying attention to the mathematical conversations they were having. So mm-hmm. he said, okay, so instead of standing up at the front, mm-hmm. why don't you go around to each group and say it to each group? Mm-hmm. So we did that, and I sat in, and it was a little bit better, but still not so great because mm-hmm. we noticed that if they're sitting in a group of four, their attention is, is literally sort of um, visually at the center of the table. Mm-hmm. So when they're sitting in a group of four, their attention is directed at the center of that group. Mm -hmm. And so when he stands next to them, they're not paying attention to him. So then we said, so what what you're going to do is you're going to go around to each group and you're going to take your hand and bank it into a fist and put it Mm -hmm. in the middle of the table. Mm -hmm. So it's clear that you're getting attention. And and then our prediction is they'll look at that and then look at you and say, what the hell is this guy doing? And Mm -hmm. then you can say, you know, you're having a great conversation. Could you... You know, I'm going I'm to want the whole group to talk in a minute. Can, you know, I'd like you to see if you can finish it up or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did that, and it was just a whole lot better. Like, all of a sudden, this was sort of, this seemed to create a quantum change. So this, we use this as an example to sort of talk about what reflective practice means and how just sort of trying little changes and seeing how they work mm-hmm. and then trying them again, how sort of it's a long but interesting process and that these little tiny changes actually can be pretty big, right? So if he's doing that three times a class, and it's taken four minutes each time, mm-hmm. that's 12 minutes every class. Mm-hmm. And that's, his class is 45 minutes, so that's a quarter of the time, hmm. all right? And if he's got 180 days a year, that's 45 school days, he's waiting for kids to stop talking so they can have a full day, right? <laughs> so they can have a full group discussion. And so if he can make, turn that from three minutes to 30 seconds, yeah. you know, he's just saved himself... 37 days of instruction. And while still respecting the students and not just cutting them off and yeah. And not feeling bad that they're not talking and and actually realizing that they're doing productive work. So So it's analyzing the problem, thinking about it carefully and making these purposeful adjustments. Right. And, and, and how it's helpful to have, um, to work with others to Mm -hmm. do this. And so that was sort of our example of reflective practice. Now it's interesting that that example isn't overtly mathematical. 
um, so I can hear Fran in the back of my head going, but we need a math example. Um, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive, right? Like, right. Um, um, you have a lot of people in your head, it sounds like. So that must yeah, be helpful. That's, that's why there's no hair on the top of it. <laughs> you must have a lot of people in your I, head, too. That must be it. I hadn't <laughs> thought of it that way. <laughs> I'm speaking with Rob, Rob Wyman from Rowan University um, about his book, Success from the Start, Your First Years Teaching Secondary Mathematics. So this book isn't out yet, but it should be very soon from NCTM. And as it comes out, I was wondering what your hopes are for who might use it, how they might use it. So it, the specific audience are is, is new teachers of mathematics. So so the audience are secondary teachers, middle school and secondary. It's middle middle and high school. So when mm-hmm. we say secondary, we mean mm-hmm. middle and high school. Okay. So it's mostly teachers who teach mathematics versus sort of self-contained classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're thinking that it's people who are going to teach, people who have just started teaching, so people in their first couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, we also think it would be really helpful for um, mathematics educators, so people who are working with those people, so administrators, mm-hmm. um, mathematics educators in universities and colleges, supervisors of student teachers, professional developers. You know, We would like to think it would be a great book to read as sort of a book group in some sort of professional learning community. Mm-hmm. And some others, I mean, I think it would also, it's nice to think that um, there are things in this book that people who've taught for 20 years can can use. Um, and I think that that's, that would be great. I mm-hmm. mean, if you want to buy it and you've been teaching for 20 years, we will not prevent you from buying this <laughs> book. Um, but that's not the primary audience. Um, right. Okay. So that, and, and we hope that, you know, so one way is that people just sit through and read it, but we also think that often what happens as a teacher in general, but a new teacher in particular, there are specific issues that come up that you haven't thought about or you feel really stumped by, and that, right, so all, you know, homework, my gosh, nobody's doing their homework. I, I seem to have these other things down, but homework's such a pain. And so one of the things we see is, you know, just have it around, and when that happens, you look up the chapter in homework, mm-hmm. right? Or, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I, I have a certain group of kids that I just can't get them to behave. Then you pick up and you read the chapter about management, and... Mm-hmm. Part of what we've tried to do is have the big ideas around all those small things connect back to the big ideas of the book. Mm-hmm. So um, so there's a lot of ways into sort of that big idea rather than if you don't read the first chapters, you're done. So that's sort of how we see people using it, and we hope that lots of people use it. No, I, I mean, I think it will be a great resource. I think it does fill that, that need that uh, you mentioned at the beginning. Um, so thanks so much for your work on it. Uh, before I let you go, though, I do have one more question. I ask it of all my guests, so you're not alone if this is a little bit of an awkward position. But imagine if you were not in mathematics education as your profession. What would you be doing? So I even had, like, an hour to think of this, right? And I still am like, <laughs> I don't know. So now it's feel like total, like, so this is the contest to see how cool I am. <laughs> and, you know, I failed that contest long ago, mm-hmm. so... Uh, so now you can just think, you know, forget what anybody else thinks, and what would you be doing? So, so, so I'm, so I'm going to tell you a story. So, so when I was a kid, back in the old days, I um, spent some time hitchhiking a fair amount, actually. Oh. And so one of the things that I did when I hitchhiked was whenever someone picked me up, I would just make up a different identity for myself. So like, <laughs> I got to be you know, Walter Mitty for real. Like, and so, you know, oh, yes, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the game warden in Kenya, and I'm off on vacation, or I'm, you know, I'm a mountaineer, but, you know, I'm, so I just make up all these things. Uh-huh. And uh, at one point, I had some guy picked me up, this was like in England or something, and, 
And uh, so I was like, so this, I was my surfer fantasy phase, I guess. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I live in Venice Beach, and I, like, you know, I surf and whatnot. And, of course, I'd never even been close to Venice Beach at all. But this guy was like, oh, yeah, I have a house in Venice Beach. I love it. And he started talking about all the restaurants and whether I like this place or that place. And so I stopped doing that after that for a little while. <laughs> Luckily, he just never stopped talking about himself. So, so, what if, so what would I be if I was not a math educator? So I think that I would be an exotic foods um, critic. Hmm. So like the weirdest things to eat and write about that. Now it seems like that's kind of a low pressure critic because people won't have a basis for comparing whether your sort of judgment is... That's right. So uh, if I tell you that the best fried grasshoppers are on the corner of uh-huh. you know, 5th and 14th and yep, you know, I'm Bangkok, gonna believe you. I'm going to believe you. You're going to say, yeah, that's probably right. I have no better basis for... All right. Well, in that case, yeah, the best fried grasshoppers clearly are in Bangkok. Absolutely. So yeah, I would be, I would be a, a um, gross-out exotic foods writing critic. Well, that sounds fun. Maybe slightly dangerous, but that might be part of what makes That's it me all over, man. <laughs> fun and slightly dangerous, Sam. Well, thanks, Rob, so much for taking the time to uh, do this. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you very much. I think the work you're doing is excellent, Sam. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.